0: to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Before I start today, I'd like to just point out that the last two episodes, the intro and outro music, changed. And that was because I thought it'd be quite fun to feature the tracks of the album that we were talking about. Um, I had a very alarming email from, well, text message from my dad who will be listening to this. Uh, saying, what's happened to the theme music? And that's what's happened to the theme music. So we're back to normal this week, as you will have already known. Um, So there we go. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I have decided to start a Spotify playlist of the recordings that we talk about, because I think that would be quite useful. So hopefully by the time this comes out, if you go to the show notes, uh, you will see a link to a spotify playlist i know not everybody uses spotify i'm sorry um but you could at least visit it on the website and just use it as a an almost an index for the the things that you can uh you can listen to but this particular conversation and the last one really um there's a lot of examples that i think are really useful to listen to and it's in terms of producers conversations it's so important to hear what they're what they're actually playing. And I know if you're listening to a podcast, sort of driving or while you're working or something, it's not easy to write this stuff down and then go and check it out. And I, you know I'm guilty of it as the next person that I just don't go and check stuff out. Even, even if I do write it down, I still just don't get round to it. So hopefully if you go and listen to the playlist, it will be a useful tool. And I won't flood it with things, but hopefully with every guest, I can put a couple of examples of things that they've worked on. Just to give you a bit of perspective um, before or after you've listened. So yes, if you do that, uh, hopefully if you go to the Podbean, uh, if you Google that 60s recording podcast, there's a Podbean site for it too. Uh, Hopefully I'll manage, I haven't actually done this yet, but hopefully I can manage to get this in the description uh, of the podcast too. So you'll be able to just click on that if it, uh, it should be in the show notes below. Okay. So anyway, uh, today I am speaking with a engineer, producer, studio owner, musician, all of the things, uh, called Ed Deegan, who has a studio called Gizzard Recording Studios, which are located in Bow in East London. Uh, They've been there since 2002. And Ed started off his career working at Torag Studios with an engineer called Liam. And Torag is a studio that you, potentially, if you're in America, you won't know about this, but if you're from the UK you will have heard of this studio. Uh, nearly lots of people have. And it was this, the studio that uh, Elephant White Stripes uh, was recorded at, the, the amazing album. Um, so he started off his journey there and then moved into his own place um, with a bit of help from Liam in terms of gear. And they both have very similar attitudes towards recording. And, and chatting with Ed is really interesting about uh, his approach to to the whole analogue thing, really. There's not a computer in sight apart from the uh, the backing up process. And uh, and I love that. So yeah, it's a really, really cool conversation and I really hope that you enjoy it. So here it is, part one of my conversation with Ed Deegan. I wonder if um, if you could start off by sort of just giving a, a bit of a synopsis about what uh, Gizzard recording is and who you are and, and sort of uh, just an overview sure. of where you're currently at. Well,
1: I suppose it's easy to start from the beginning. I mean, I started off, probably, I mean, I started doing this when I was about 20, so I'm, I'm nearly 50 now, so it's quite a long time, a lot of recording. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I started basically started playing off in bands, you know, you know around the sort of shoegaze sort of era of music i guess with regards to guitars anyway yeah. and um we did our first record at Rag studios which oh, is, cool. i'm sure you know yeah. so um and um, st- before that i you know i played around with four track and stuff and you know back then you know home recording was you, you couldn't really get great results you get decent results if you get some space but it, it was much harder to get good results so as soon as we arrived we were put on to toe by a friend of ours who was helping us with recording I mean, from a band a guy called Graham Sutton from a band called Bark Psychosis I don't know if you know
0: yeah, him. I've come across them yeah. but
1: he he was a far more advanced than we were and you know in terms of his knowledge in terms of you know recording we were very green um, and he put us onto Torex Studios And he said, come on, let's go here It's all old gear, you know And at the time, there was no analogue or digital It was just, yeah. it was old <laughs> <laughs> uh, It was 60s, you know, um, mainly And um, as soon as we got in there I just, I, you know collection once the It's just incredible And I just, you know, really responded To the environment And then um, at the, by the end of it, because of my sort of basic knowledge of recording, I sort of asked Liam if I could, you know, help with the mix. You know, if I could just do a bit of mixing, and he was yeah. really cool about it. He said, "Oh, can on, Jed, this is the bass You know, sort of laid out the board for me. I said, "Look, you just have a play around with that," and um, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was pretty much hooked from that moment onwards. So I sort of said to him, "I, I said, Look, can I come in and just make tea?" You know, and back then, you know, you could get, you could get into a studio by just tape hopping. You know, being a tape hop. <sighs> yeah, it's harder now, obviously, because it's not you know there's no tape machine mostly but um immediately i could get involved in the in the working environment and sat sat by this machine just shutting it back and forward and dropping in and that was it really i started there and you know and then did that for many years until you know finally i wanted to you know just have my own place and then you know when it Plodded off down to the Prince's Trust. That I was younger then, <laughs> young enough to qualify for that, and because um, no one else was going to give me any money, and um, I got, sort of few, you know, got a few, you know, I got a few grand, I think about six grand from them, which was great, yeah. enough to set up a sort of very humble, you know, half-inch eight-track uh, little mixer. I think a little studio master mix, nothing special at all, and um, managed to get a small. Um, uh, I, there was a rehearsal room where I used to use a lot, and above the rehearsal room there was a tiny MIDI room. I guess is what you'd call it, like a tiny, you know, sort of eight foot by four foot rectangular thing yeah. that you could rent. And um, I rented that and put my gear in there, and I plumbed my clients down to the rehearsal room that was directly below. So when I got a booking, I rented the top room permanently, and the room below I, I um, used to just rent as. Um, as needed from right. the guys who run the rehearsal room and of course day rates in rehearsal rooms are quite reasonable so i could rent that for the day and put my bit on top and it was still quite cheap for the band so that's how gizzard recording started still with me still working at Rag and slowly getting my foot in the door you know of having my own place and it was so successful that I thought, right, great. I'm gonna have, you know, I gave me the confidence to kind of then go on and, and get premises and, and put together what I've got here now. You know, so that's that. Um, should I carry on with that? <laughs> well, I've just got yeah.
0: a question on the back of that. Then, so um, I mean, obviously, I've, I haven't actually managed to speak with Liam from Torag yet. He's on, he's on the list, but he's on, on your main, list. I yeah, short, keeps, yeah. um, I'm in contact with him, but he just keeps cropping up as you know somebody that I'm I'm desperate to speak with. Um, yeah. But I mean, oh, that, to unpack a little bit what you what you've just said, if we, I mean, the, my main question first of all is when you started working above this rehearsal room, were you working with bands that you'd sort of met on the scene, or how how were you? What attracted them to you? How were you sure. finding out about people?
1: Well, because um, well, obviously being a tourag was was really useful yeah. because um, that was just in the build up towards. The sort of biggest you know the biggest time for Liam really when the Y stripes elephant thing was about well, we didn't know that was going to happen but that yeah. was around the corner um so uh, bands would come into toreg and you know it was always it was never really a conflict it's never really been even though we're up the road from each other you know Toe Rag, and here it's never a competition element to to what we do. I don't know what it's it's a strange. It's never become that way. But it, I mean, I would just quite happily say, "Oh, well, I'd run a studio up the road," and then the band might come to my studio. Then they'd go back to Toe rag, because if I had a smaller studio at the time, they might just do a demo at mine, and then we'd go and oh, I'd have engineering at Toe rag, you know, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. So both of us, the, the the work would be shared. So people would hear about it from that, and then of course word in mouth would spread, and they'd tell other people. And the fact that I was in a rehearsal room was really useful because well, yeah. the guys would say, oh, yeah, there's a good bloke upstairs, you know, he's, he's down recording. And um, also at the time, there was a club called an Art Rocker Club. Um, in. Um, it was called Art Rocker and it was in their hybrid in Islington yeah. and it was run by the guys who used to run two pure records who discovered PJ Harvey and you know they'd started up their own label art rocker and again that was very guitar based very rocking you know it's the sort of stuff that would sound great on tape so i rekindled my um, friendship with those guys because i knew them from the two pure days with PJ Harvey and they they really Loved the studio, the idea of the tape, and it was affordable. So they would just constantly, like, plug bands over to me because they were running a club. So, oh, yeah, go and see Ed, go and see Ed. And that was great. You know, yeah. so, so that really really that really blossomed and then of course you know it's like this word in mouth some other person tells another person I've never really advertised and the with studios I I've, I've tried advertising. I've even tried Google ads I've tried all sorts of ways of advertising just because I felt I should yeah. but I must say it's it's been completely pointless in my <laughs> in my in my experience you know it's um, everything has always come just from people telling other people I, you know it's just it just seems to be the way i don't know why maybe social media it does more these days i don't know but um in terms of ads anyway it would never be any use but yeah that's how that came about really that's how people found me and you know i pushed on to eventually you know getting my premises here which is you know a proper you know decent sized space yeah a proper library and everything and
0: um, going back you to know? when you started at um torag then did you had any recording experience before that at all uh, did you were you doing any home recordings just on a
1: little very basic fostex cassette four track yeah. and um literally just playing around and um i'd done a course at a local um college you know just a very you know sort of six months course um and at the time it's quite funny how the the times have changed but then back then everything was so it was a small course, but it was very focused on the MIDI aspect of recording, you know, even though yeah. they had a tape machine, but everything is MIDI was, ev- MIDI was everywhere. And to me, I just, I can't, you know, I don't mind a bit of MIDI, but it <laughs> wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't where I, what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be recording bands. And then, you know, the guy, the engineer, the guy who was running the course, goes, oh, you'll probably never need to even know how to mic up a drum kit. And that just oh, tells yeah. you the way people were thinking, you know, back then, the, you know, Simmons kit, you know, and then a couple of overheads to catch the symbols, and that was the kind of idea and um and of course i knew this not to be true <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, you know when i eventually found Terry, that's why it was such a revelation because everyone would just be setting up recording night you know and and we, we didn't care too much about separation particularly we just wanted to record and that and back then um i know it sounds you know a lot of people do that now and it's it's not that strange but Back then, you know, in the sort of, when was this, sort of the like early 90s, late 80s, that was just ridiculous. you went into to a studio and said, Oh, we want to set up live and play. They just think you were insane. You know, <laughs> it's like that was just not on the cards, you know. And studios obviously wanted to make as much money as possible. So, you know, oh, let's do the drums, let's break. You know, you've had a band, they've been rehearsing for Christ knows how long, getting all their songs together, they're ready to go. And they arrive at the studio and the guy says, Oh, no, we're going to break all that down now and you're going to just record the drums on your own to a guide guitar and all the other guys are going to sit there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, this is like, how on earth are you ever going to get the band to play with any kind of enthusiasm, you know, yeah. considering how, just looking at the basic, how they've, how they've set up their recording session, they would have just rehearsed in rehearsal room. So why break that down? Why don't you just bring them in and try and recreate that as much as is possible? <laughs> And um, well, that's I'm sort of digressing a little bit. I'm sort of going into (laughs) ethos there rather than. But this is this is why, basically, I guess I've taken this path, you know, because of my own frustrations, especially in the 80s. I don't think it's as bad now, but back then it really was. You know, they would you would never get to record live. It seems to
0: just be swing, like you know, swinging back round to, you know, see, it's a natural progression, isn't it? That through the sort of 70s and then into the 80s, everything started to get more electronic, and that was the new exciting thing and Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was almost seen as a as a better sound. I, I've just um, finished reading a book by um, an engineer called Adrian Carriage, who was at Lansdowne, and um, he he's got some advice at the back of the book about mic techniques. He did a lot oh, of the um, uh, oh, my mind's gone black. Is it the KPM uh, library music stuff? Right. And uh, everything he says is about the band being able to see each other and hear each other and, and, basically talks, he just says exactly what you've just said. You know, as an engineer, the book was written in 2006 and he was um, working through the 60s and he's saying, you know, nowadays people are just forgetting exactly what you've just said. And, the, the most important thing above all eqing and microphone techniques and whatever you want me to talk about none of that's important if the band can't see each other and hear each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, I totally. See. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny, isn't it? You get so so. I think you you get kind of. Caught, I mean, I've done it myself. You get caught up in the in the in the kind of the more complicated aspects of of the process, I and mean, you kind of forget that. Um, the day simple things you know like just the, the drummer would be able to see the bassist you know so he can kind of just get the cues right and, yeah and you know hear the you know it's like it's so it's it really is funny i mean and so sort of, you know on a similar note i mean you can also be in the studios forget i some i think you know that there's how good results can be without all this expensive equipment i mean um I remember once, you know, when I started to work at Torey, you kind of think, I am mean, surrounded by C12s and, you know, U67s and studio Machines, you think, oh God, I just, you know, I'm I'm just, whatever I do will be great, you know, yeah. and then, so it's not, I mean, I'm sort of exaggerating, but, and then I remember once, you know, a band came in and they'd done some home recording on an ADAT somewhere and then, um, and I was thinking, oh, well, there's no way it's going to be better than me, arrogant, you know, 20-year-old. Yeah. There's no way, it can't possibly be better than something I've done on, on a studio. And it was. It was, be- <laughs> it was better. And, and those sort of knocks make you realize, hang on a minute, why is it better? Um, probably because they were really comfortable. And, and, and when you looked at how they'd recorded it, they, they'd done it really simply, but... That was right that mm-hmm. was the right way to record that band am i in there and then, and then I, it really did turn things it, little things like that maybe really sort of not get keeps you grounded and you know and you kind of realize like you know not to get snotty about like you know oh you know we can only have, we can only record this with a u67 and well, <laughs> my u67 <laughs> might not be right i mean maybe a 57 yeah, <laughs> it's better yeah. you know and i'm i really am I mean that's another really important thing for me not to become a snob. But I mean that's easy for me to say because I've kind of used those that gear, you know, and you kind of come you've had I've had a chance to come full circle on it. But um I think it's really important and never there's never any reason why something shouldn't sound really good, you know, just because you haven't got a, gear a you know yeah, or yeah. item b you know I, I do think you can do incredible things you know And sometimes it makes you think outside the box and you just do stuff you wouldn't normally do you know so,
0: so. on that like on that note what were you what were you sort of learning or observing on on a daily basis at, at Rags? i'm just trying to build a picture of of kind sure. of where your head was at when you when you sort of moved into the rehearsal space like what was your what was happening for you in terms of um, what you were learning through the time you spent at Toe Rag?
1: Well, <clears throat> sorry, um, yeah, so when when I was at Toe Rag, I mean, the this, this amount of bands that came through, you just got to see all factions, all manner of, of types of music coming through and, and recording it. And I was really fortunate at the time, you know, Liam was a good friend of Mark Neal, he was yeah. a you know, really good, great engineer in America. And he, he, he sort of caught you know, you've heard about what Liam was doing and, and what we we're up to, and he said, look, I really love, I'm really into it, I, you know, but he was much more advanced technically than we were. He, you know, his knowledge was, I mean, the guy's a bit of a genius, to be honest, I think he is anyway. He um he decided he was going to come over here and to London and help us sort through our gigs. We had it set up, and Liam had a red desk, red sensing desk, but mm. it was Abbey Road board. And we had another old board, you know, that was based... Based on it, it wasn't really any make. It was something someone had sort of put together as a bit of a project. But it was quite interesting. and had these great compressors in it. And um, he had that. And there we were all these bits and pieces kind of like, and we were trying through books and trying, you know, through what we'd read or whatever to put it together as a studio would have been in, the, you know, the mid-60s. Yeah. And um, he knew exactly how to do that. And mm-hmm. we were learning, trying to, to achieve that. And, um, you know, getting some really good results. But there was things we were doing that we just didn't know that could have been done much better. And, and he came over and he helped us. And that was a massive learning curve that those, those days, you know, I remember when he came over, he only was only over for a week and we used to work through the night and we'd work, you know, in the day and, you know, we just kept going. And it was a really positive, like, you know, experience, just, mm. you know, constantly listening to records and then, you know, fixing gear. And finally we get, you know, his mission was by the end of his time with us to get our BTR, um mono btr british tape recorder i'm sure you know what they want yeah Uh, you know the the abbey road machine going because we had one big green lovely machine and he you know that was the sort of goal to to get this thing working and um you know he was he was was, his head mark's head was in this machine constantly for the whole (laughs) week and i we were just thinking god is he gonna you know is he gonna get the thing going you know and by the end of it you know he did you know and and it was just such a joy, you yeah, know, yeah. and we, we all did this recording session. We all got any instrument we could and We did a session and Liam engineered it and we all, I think I played drums and someone else played some other stuff. And we recorded, you know, onto the BTR, which was just, you know, i never forget that. That was great. So all these experiences, you know, I'd sort of, all these amazing people, and it was just a really, you know, lucky in a way. It's so like anything is timing, isn't it? You know, you roll into these things. And um, that set me up for what I wanted to do with my studio. And to be honest, I, I just, My reasons for wanting to have my own studio was really just so I could stretch my legs and sort of do, follow the, the, not massively different from Toe, but you just wanted to work for myself, really, and have my own, have my own setup and things set up the way I wanted to set them up.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, but the ethos hadn't, hasn't changed. I mean, there there might be some slight differences between, obviously there's differences between Toe Rag and this studio. Yeah. But um, in terms of those beginnings and those ideas and, and, you know, those things we've discussed already about being able to look at each other and, and, and sort of ideas, um, not a huge, I wanted to just have that, but have it for myself, I guess, <laughs> and work for myself. So the only way I saw to do that was to start off small and it, you know, it, it wasn't. I, I mean, I, in a way, it was quite good. I thought, well, I'm going to have to go back to working on a tabletop machine. I'm going to have to go back to like a studio master desk. I'm not mm. going to be able to work on the Abbey Road desk anymore. And um, those things didn't bother me. I thought, well, I'll get there eventually. And um, and that sort of leads me really where to where I managed to find this Alice desk and and all that stuff. So once I got the money from the Prince's Trust and I was building up, and I was working at Towrag, and I was also doing the, you know my own the beginnings of my own studio at the rehearsal room so mm. between the two of them i was, I was really mm. busy and um eventually a friend of mine uh tom cullen he he had, it was a band called quickspace supersport that did quite well in the, in the 90s mm. and he got an advance from matador and um he bought a load of recording equipment he was quite an enthusiast himself but never really kind of wanted to start a studio but just liked playing around with the gear and recording his own stuff yeah. and he bought a. Uh, a AT eighty sixteen track, and he somehow acquired this Alice desk, which I, I suspect you know it's it's probably you know one of the you know um, track plan ones that people go on about. You know the 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 Helios um, poor man's Helios type oh, yes. things. Yeah. I I suspect I don't know for sure, but or it's one of the ones that come very soon after that. And um, he he got this thing, you know, and he, he it was a bit in a bit of a sorry state, and um, he never really used it and didn't do anything. When I went to his place, he had all his studio gear up in Lancashire, his parents' place. Mm. And um, he took us up there to do some recording. And I saw this thing. I was, what what, what what's going on with this? And he, and he goes, oh, I don't know. I'm going to get it going eventually. So I just badgered him for this desk. I said, Look, let's bring it down. And I was living in the bedsit at the time. <laughs> and, I, and I said, we can get it into my bedsit. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I had like a sort of chair, like a swivel chair that I'd taken the back of it. And I sort of precariously sort of balanced it on the chair so I could revolve it round so, kind of operate on it in various manners. And, you know, so he pumped it, took up the whole room, and he said, well, if you can get it going, you can use it, but as long as I can use it whenever I want. And that was kind of, I thought, fair enough, okay. I, need, I needed a big desk to set up my studio with, and I needed something to, to marry. At the time, I had his two-inch, six-inch That was in the two-inch 6 The tape machine wasn't in the bed sit. <laughs> but um, that was still someone else. But he's, he said I could use that as well. So this was how I, this was my way in to get like a, you know, serious you know tape machine and board to yeah. get myself going and um i've muddled about this desk for ages i got the thing working and then we got the premises here in bow and i put it in and i got it and it was never it wasn't perfectly running when we opened it up it was it was running enough that we could get good results from it and, I, and as the sort of the studio got going i tinkered away on it and i slowly got it you know up to scratch with some help from He's not, no longer with us now, but he's an amazing um, technician called Pete Martelli mm. who um, used to do all the studios. I met him through ToeRank, you know, for the time. He helped me, with, you know, get the thing going, and you know, get it up and running. And um, that's how I got it. And eventually, once it was up and running, you know, Tom sort like, of oh. <laughs> 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 got it going, and he came in and did some sessions on it, which was great. And eventually, we arranged. I thought, "Well, I'm going to have to buy it off you. You know, can we? Can I buy it off you?" And we eventually, you know, came to a sort of plan. Yeah. I didn't buy the tape machine off him. I I ended up buying the sixteen track two inch off Liam in the end because he had right. one, but he didn't didn't want it. So, but that's where the Dallas desk came from, and that's what I'm still using. I'm just looking at it right now. Um, <laughs> um, so that's that's how that came well, about
0: and then it... that you don't see them too often uh, i think i only saw the first one i've ever <laughs> seen in about uh, at a studio in down in um, in devon maybe uh, last year i think it was oh wow yeah and then since doing a bit of research about them you know found out the significance of them but i don't know anywhere else that's got them
1: yeah i've never seen another i've seen lots of the small mixers, which are great by the way the little green ones yeah um they're, they're fantastic, but I've never I've never come across another studio that's had one in you know in one piece you know and then um, I mean on the alias subject I mean another uh, I did a session with with Mungo Jerry yeah um, a few years quite well, quite a few years ago now and um, he had an alias desk a bit later than than what I've got and he said um, you know. He had it running and he had, you know, the, the chassis that all his mod, all the modules fitted into, it, it rusted away. But he still had all the, all the modules and he said, oh do, oh, do you want them? So I acquired all Mungo Jerry's Alice wow, desk, cool. which I've got racked. Some of the modules racked up running off the same power supply as this desk because it, it's the same, you know. Yeah. So that's a, a nice little addition, you know, to, to the
0: situation. Yeah, that's really cool. So, Did you have to ask. change your, I mean you're almost a bit spoiled using such a beautiful desk at torag and then when you kind of had to step away did you have to change your approach sort of at all in order to get sounds that you were used to hearing
1: um i kind of just accepted that it wasn't going to be as good a a large (laughs) and um because that reflected in our price we were charging at the time yeah um and I just like the rehearsal room that we were recording in it there was no treatment there it was just typical carpet all over the wall it was awful it's a square room so it was kind of hard there's a lot of horrible spill that would come on the instruments but you know it, well you had it was almost like doing a location recording you know you just had to kind of go with that and do the best you could and i didn't have the mics really so I mean, one thing i did do like yeah, on, yeah, actually, what you—I did have to change a lot. Actually, and now you've got me on the subject. I'm <laughs> to remember. Like, I would close mic drums more mm. because of the room didn't sound so hot. So I would—I I didn't really want that horrible kind of trophy mids that come fly around. You know, I would close mic the drums more. Like now, I—I I, I probably just should do a kind of Glenn Johns type thing mm. and have the mics hanging around the drums a lot more the room's nice but in that room i would always close mic them and put overhead in and decide how much i could bear of the kind of <laughs> spill and and make it work that way and and obviously close my di a bit more as well than like, on the bass and stuff i wouldn't mic as much as i'd like to and um you know because we we're working on a half inch eight track at the time i would um I mean, I didn't change too much. In regards to the tape machine, I didn't change things too much. I'd probably re- record a little bit hotter because mm-hmm. of would be more tape hiss. So I'd cut a bit hotter on there. And um, obviously the EQs on the desk weren't very good. So I'd try and not really do much EQing because I didn't like... What, cause it was a studio master, master desk and the EQs were a bit... Ugh. you know, It, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. a nice thing to introduce to the sound. So I'd, I'd probably attenuate more. Mm then filter more and, and, and do things like that and I'd use the mic filters on the mics themselves a lot as well and I try and I try not to use the gear as much you know because it didn't sound so good you know and so uh, you'd, you'd kind of work around it like that and I you know I didn't have you know the compressors I had weren't great but I had to obviously use them hmm. and um I would yeah I just you'd just sort of know using your ears you know that you know what you could get away with I mean, the reverb we had was just a multi-effects thing, you know, yeah. and um, so i try and do my best with that, but it's, I still got, you know, a lot of those records are still out there, and, you know, do, you know, people say they sound great, and, you know, you, you just have to be more aware. I think I was, I was very aware that what I had, you know, I think that's more the, the key, being yeah. aware that, you know, what you've got here is not great, so you're going to have to try and navigate getting good results here, you know, and go on more vibey kind of type approaches than, you know, trying to sort of get something really hi-fi or something, you know, you're not going to get, it's not going to sound like Revolver. It's just not <laughs> going to. So <laughs> let's try it. <laughs> I you know, work to our strengths here and, you know, and then um, do it that way. And then of course when I got it, it was quite nice having that. I'd work up on my place in the week and I'd go off to Toreg to pick up the weekends for Liam. Mm. So you had that immediate comparison you know, constantly being reminded yeah. and which was really useful because you could just see it night and day and see what was good and what wasn't good and what you wanted to have in your studio. When you finally got, when I finally got here, that yeah. was important, you know, that was really important. Oh, I must have that. I must get that sorted out. And for me, I mean, I must say that I've, the, the, the most important thing would be the monitoring over all of it.
0: Interesting,
1: Because if I can't hear anything properly in the, in the room I'm in that I'm monitoring in, I can't fix it. Yeah. You know, so if something's a bit crappy, I mean, and I might hear it. At least I've got a fighting chance to deal with it and, um, you know, maybe try another an approach or change something. But if I can't hear it properly, um, you know, it's not. So I found that to be the key in all of it. You know, the monitoring at Terry was really good. The monitoring I had at um, my place was kind of all right, I guess, but it wasn't cutting it. And I, that's what I found I thought, oh, wow, I can really hear it here. And that's what I could really, you know, already found to be the key so that was when i set this place up i thought the room the control room has got a really good acoustic the monitoring i've got has got to be really good and um you know and and do the job and i I, you know i must say i i'm really pleased with it it's probably the the, the, my proudest thing is getting the acoustics and everything sorted out in these rooms Mm. without having a, you know, well having a degree, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of having, just working with people like Mark Neal and talking to people and, yeah. and and sort of, you know, grabbing the information that way. So I guess everything I've learned, is it's been a very old-fashioned way of learning, you know, it's, I never went, I never did a, a degree or anything or I mean, any I would, kind of education. I'd in, argue in that,
0: Canada. um, that you, I don't know if they would even teach that. I think monitoring is a is a subject that's completely overlooked. Um, and it seems to... Like, again, the Adrian Carriage book I was talking about, he talks a huge amount about it, what they did at Lansdowne and um, the monitoring there. It's just fresh in my mind. But there's a... It seems to be something that's come up again and again. And uh, Ken Scott mentioned it when, when I spoke to him. That's, you know, a hugely important thing for him. And it's almost, you know, everybody's got... Uh, like rocket KRK monitors, and they're just more interested in having a having the the best microphone they can. But yeah. If you can't hear it, if you can't hear it accurately, then um, sure. It seems it seems so obvious when you say yeah. it, but it seems to be so often overlooked, especially in you know the days now of. Uh, Sort of looking at YouTube and mix tricks and all this sort of clickbaity type stuff. It, it's, it's um, you know, the basic stuff of just hearing accurately what you're doing is <laughs> obviously very important.
1: It's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, I was the same when I was, you know, I started off, I just wanted, I saw photos of the Beatles, you know, using, you know, U67s and all this stuff, and I just wanted to do, I wanted that, you know. That's yeah. <laughs> all I was interested in. And it makes sense, it's like looking at a guitar you want, isn't it, and yeah. someone playing it that you really admire. Just, you know, monitoring all a bit boring. really.
0: Isn't it? it's, just
1: it's, <laughs> it's not as exciting. <laughs> so, um, you know, it took a while to realise, oh, God, yeah, you know, I've got to deal with this situation, maybe do a few sums. <laughs> and um, do stuff I didn't want to do. But, well, it very satisfying to do it, though. I, I do recommend, you know, going down that road a little bit. People want to do it. it it's so satisfying when you can, and it's really a real revolution. Rev, you know, you really when you not understand why rooms are doing what they're doing. You think, Oh, well, that's why it is. You know, and you feel much more sort of empowered. You know, to kind of deal with. It, it changes your decision making through the day. You know what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, it's useful.
0: Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, so, how did you go up? Uh, sort of building (laughs) Not now we've just sort of (laughs) sort of like (laughs) rubbish gear now I'm going to ask you about gear Um, so like you moved into into your uh, to where you're currently at um, and uh, presumably you you had the the Alice desk at that point so you moved that in yeah
1: got it out of the bed shit
0: yeah so what was your (laughs) so apart from the control room what was your kind of um you know, if you got what was the space like when you moved in, and what were you, you know, how did you go about sort of building what you've currently? Sure.
1: Got? Well, again, I, I was well, I got the, the lease on this on this premises here, and it was just like a, it's the first floor of like a detached unit. So I was very lucky that it was detached. So that was a real, real really, it's in a sort of like a, a business park, but mm. a really old fashioned business park. These kind of like shack like buildings, you know, <laughs> yeah. and this sort of thing. And our one is detached, so we had, it's like a night of massive rectangular space. Um, and at the time the kitchen was on the first floor, but I've since moved that. And um, then we're a small room area downstairs, you know, we're a kitchen and the loo and everything with the kitchens down there now, but it was up here. Mm. But um, anyway, that's not really important. So <laughs> <a> massive reg- <laughs> rectangular space. Mm. And um, I, the, what my thought was to just make, literally slice it in half. Obviously the smaller end would be the, the, uh, control room and the large end would be the live room. Yeah. But before I, I sort of made that call, I was running these, 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 um, these ma- this maths to fi- you know work out how the rooms would respond to the bottom end on base, you know, get the standing waves and everything. So I'd, everywhere I walked in, I was looking for this place, I was looking, you know, g- going around with this tape measure. People would think I was nuts, you know, the <laughs> state agent, but, you know, I was to, really to see if it was possible to make that situation. I wanted a, a control room and a live room, and I wanted, the, obviously, the live room had to be big enough, and the control room had to be, you know, everything had to be right. So, eventually, we found this place, and it was quite a simple matter of, like, obviously putting the, the stud. Work everywhere, room inside a room affair, affair, with the one wall down down the side, and then um, we did that. And you know, once I got that sorted out, and the acoustics were kind of set anyway, I knew more or less how the room was going to be and how what I wanted to do. And then got the desk in, and you know, set it all up and everything, and you know, wired everything in. So, what was your? Have I moved off the point? No, there?
0: no, that's exactly <laughs> what I want to know about. It, you know, sort of how I think the. I just think it's really interesting, the idea of, you know, you've got this experience at, a, you know, a really high quality studio doing specifically sort of analog stuff. And then you, you get the opportunity to to create your own space. I'm just interested in how you sort of went, A, about creating the the space itself and B, um, you know, accumulating gear and like what specifically sure. you, you kind of had your eye on or... Uh, right. You know, you almost got you've got all this experience working on this amazing stuff, and now you can do it yourself. And that's that's uh, it must have been quite an exciting time.
1: Oh, it was brilliant. Yeah, and then so I mean, luckily, and I was very fortunate, because you know such a good relationship with Liam. So I finally got the desk in here, got the the tape machine in there, wired it all up, it was more or less going. And the monitoring, going back to monitoring, of course, that was a big deal. I thought, well, I can't It'd be such a shame to have all this gear and I'm gonna have to sacrifice this thing that I really want. You know, I really want these good monitors. And Liam, because of the time uh, times in the 90s when the BBC were were pretty much giving away a lot of their um, redundant gear, yeah. there was a thing called the redundant store at the BBC that you could go up to and you just had to prove that you were working in the industry. And you would go into this massive warehouse and you could just go around, and the guy that was working there at the time just didn't care, and, you know, you sort of say, how much is that? Oh, 20 quid, yeah, or, oh, I, know, I know, it sounds insane. have I never heard
0: about this before? It's called the redundant
1: amazing. Store, and it was, it's, before the sale of the, it's before they sold it all properly, you know, because they couldn't get away with it now at Health and Safety, but you, you just had to prove you were part of, you know, the industry in TV or audio, and we used to go up there, and, and Liam had a good relationship with this bloke, and and you know he got like a eighty I mean, I'm I mean, I'm pretty exaggerating probably twenty quid, but it yeah, was yeah. no way nothing like eBay prices. <laughs> <laughs> a total bargains, you know, for this amazing gear. So he bought this stuff in abundance. I mean, the old towrag, it you know, was originally in Shoreditch. Was it was like a80s across the board, you know, like you know five or six one inch a80s at one point, and then um, he bought these going, you know, these monitors, these amazing BBC monitors ls1a's i think they are i can't quite remember the name but they're the the big green one you know you've got the rogers ls35a's yeah and you've got the the, in the 60s they built these big full range monitors similar shape and and sort of you know dimensions but much bigger you know kind of just a bigger version of that and then he had them at, at the turret he never really used them much i don't know why but when i set up this place he said oh you can have them you know and um, as soon as I got them set up, they really rely on, you must have your room acoustically right. Otherwise, you know, it won't, because the big things, you know, if you're going to kick out, you know, they'll, they'll give you an accurate base, but if your room's not going to you can deal with that; they'll it'll colour the sound. Yeah. So he gave me these um these monitors, and I you know set them up, and it was just fantastic. You know, I was just so pleased. You know, to finally you know, so I've got the desk, we've got the tape machine, and there you go, you've got the monitors as well. You know, so that was a bit of a gift from him. You know, to get me going.
0: Oh,
1: it, yeah. yeah. so that was. But it wouldn't have been possible without that redundant store and all the stuff that you
0: know, and we picked up from there. You know. So then, is this this is two thousand and two
1: you started, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that again, that was the timing. I think when did the when did the White Stripes album come out? When did the Elephant
0: come out? It was around. It was around then because uh, it was
1: soon, wasn't it? After that, or maybe a few year, a year or so after that. It was around that time. Yeah. Because that I couldn't have timed that better. Because Liam, you know, Turret became so busy as soon as that record, I mean, everyone wanted to record at Torek. It was like, you know, he, he was begging people <laughs> people to come in there and work. It was so busy. And of course, this place then was, was this was just like the overflow. Yeah. Because it was just perfect because everyone wanted to record on tape. Everyone wanted to try and remake that record. And then we were so busy and, it, you know, uh, and obviously it's quiet and down. It's quite a while ago now. It's totally quiet and down. But the people that, of that time who were, you know, trying and making records. A lot of those people are still with me now coming in recording, you know. So it was a, I couldn't have timed that better. You know, if I'd set this place up maybe a few years before or a few years after, it might have been harder to get the ball rolling, you know, to such a thing. But that was such a, you know, a push. You know, it just was busy before I even opened the door. You know, it was just so, so... (laughs) So so lucky in that respect. It you kind know. of
0: answers one of the questions that I had, which is, um, you know, kind of the early two thousands, I um, you know, I, I was young at that point and I don't remember ever seeing a tape machine in any of the studios I worked in in like my early bands. And it must have been I was gonna ask how how people perceived what you were doing, but in light of your relationship with Toe Rag and the white stripes thing, that's clearly they wanted the tape saturated yeah. sound, you know. And um and it that was a, a something they were looking for rather than just like, that just happened to be the way you record, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, sure. I mean, nowadays, that was definitely them because people were wanting that and they were so excited, you know, really really switched on by coming in and seeing the machine, all the old gear and everything. Mm. Um, now, we still get a, a lot of that. People fight, dig us out for that. But um, I, th- I think now people sort of, um, they're coming to the studio because of the work we've done and you know there's the sounds they hear and they like yeah but I think there's sometimes it, it, i'm not sure if they they would have they would mind if i recorded on tape or if i recorded on on hard disk um but i always record on tape because so i i like it I think yeah. it sounds better but yeah you know, as as i'm as i'm doing it they're thinking you know, oh I said, it's the sound being recorded on that tape?" And I'm saying, "Yeah, yeah, it is." Yeah, because oh, that's really cool. And then it kind of comes that way around, which is a different way of of, of um, picking it up. Yeah. And then they'll become interested, kind of, by that means. But um, it's um, it's not so much like a a call, you know, like a sort of demand as it was. People aren't like, "Say, I want, I want to record on tape, and that's what I want." We still do get that, but yeah. not as much as we did. People are just coming because they like they like the vibe, they like the studio and they like what we've done, which I guess is, is, is probably the way it should be, yeah. you know? Um, so, um, that's the sort of the f- the frenzy has, kind of totally gone from that kind of tape. You know, the everyone wanting to, the, the toe rag thing and the, yeah. you know, the, to sound like the white stripes, that's, that's completely vanished.
0: There we have it. Part one of my conversation with Ed Deegan of Gizzard recording. Uh, yeah, just I hope you really enjoyed that conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And next episode we're gonna dig in a little bit more into his workflow, how he approaches recording with bands, and sort of the attitude of um of attitude is such a horrid word, but the the sort of mentality towards um recording he has towards recording, um, which I think is really, really, really interesting. Don't forget that if you visit my website, all you need is drums. There is a shop on there and you can support this podcast by buying one of the lovely enamel mugs that I've got for sale there. Uh, You could use it to drink out of, obviously. You could also use it as a pen pot. Um, And thank you to everybody that's bought one already. I do really appreciate it. Um, Yes, also, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down and leave a little review you don't even have to write anything you can just click the stars but that would be very helpful if you wouldn't mind doing that uh, and do please spread the love of the uh, of this analog recording if you know anybody that would like to listen to this podcast uh, that would be great uh, so that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to joe Kane for the intro and outro music of this podcast to adam mallet for the artwork he supplies for the podcast and to Rory Hancock for editing and uploading and doing all of the legwork for the podcast. Appreciate all of you. Thank you for listening, and I will be back with part two next week. Goodbye!